Welcome to MD Notified, a pediatrics podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Supchuk, and today we're going to be talking about acute management of hypertension in pediatric patients. So this is going to be a talk about acute management of hypertension, not chronic management of hypertension. So we're really going to be focusing on the interventions that we do in the hospital, in the emergency department, and in the urgent care settings to decrease very severely elevated blood pressures. Now, before we start talking about management of acute hypertension, um, of course, we kind of have to go into a little bit of background and discuss blood pressure kind of in general. So in general, um, we measure blood pressures in the hospital, in the emergency department, and in urgent care settings, usually with these kind of automated blood pressure machines. So when you see the reading that pops up in the vital signs, typically that's from a machine, not from a nurse or a physician or a tech um, actually getting the blood pressure with their stethoscope in a manual fashion. And so what's important to know about that is that the blood pressures that we get off of those machines are a little bit different than our manual blood pressures. And what I mean by that is the machine works by taking a measure of the mean arterial pressure or the MAP, and then it runs it through this sort of formula to produce both the diastolic and the systolic blood pressures. So in that sense, it's kind of extrapolating those numbers. So we really have to keep that in mind when we are looking at blood pressures that we're getting off of a machine. Another thing I wanted to talk about is some common blood pressure mishaps. So things that kind of commonly go wrong in the whole taking a blood pressure process. Number one, of course, is using the wrong size cuff. The cuff has to be a very specific size, both the bladder of the cuff and the width of the cuff, in order to produce an accurate number in our patients. In pediatrics, this is particularly important because we may use cuffs that are usually good for a five-year-old or usually good for a teenager, but the teenager or the five-year-old that we have sitting in front of us is either way too big or way too small for that cuff. So just because you get an age-appropriate cuff doesn't mean it's necessarily um, specifically appropriate for your patient, depending on their size. So that begs the question of how do we know that our blood pressure cuff is the correct size? We're going to want to look at two things. One is the width of the cuff. So if you imagine you roll out your blood pressure cuff and you're laying it flat on a table, um, you can imagine that it's sort of like a rectangular shape. And so that short side of the rectangle or the width of the cuff, um, that measurement should be about 40% of the patient's length of their arm between their shoulder and their elbow. So picture the length of their humerus. Um, That width of the cuff or the short end of that rectangle should be about 40% of that overall length of the humerus. The second thing we want to look at is the bladder itself. So if you, again, picture that you're rolling out your blood pressure cuff, um, the bladder should be, if you wrap it around the patient's arm, it should take up about 80% to 100% of the circumference of that arm. So if both of those measurements are correct in your patient, then you have the correct size of cuff. Another common mishap that occurs when we're taking blood pressures is using the wrong extremity. So if you look at historically, when people do research um, that we now use to construct our blood pressure norms in pediatrics, 
um, when they have historically done those projects, they have measured blood pressures in the upper extremities and most often in the right upper extremity. So what that means is that those blood pressure norms that we're using are based off of um, upper extremity values. So if you have a baby or if you have a kid and let's say they have IVs in both arms or one of their arms is injured and the other one has an IV in it and the nurse is getting blood pressures in the lower extremities, um, that can create some problems because typically the lower extremities will have higher blood pressures anyway. So if you're kind of comparing apples to oranges um, when you're looking at a lower extremity blood pressure, um, but comparing it against norms that have been created based off of upper extremity blood pressures. So sometimes there's nothing you can do about that, and that's just the blood pressure that you have. Um, but it is something to keep in mind when you're talking to your nurse about a patient who has an elevated blood pressure. Um, it might be a good idea to ask them what extremity was that blood pressure taken on. A third common blood pressure mishap that I see is um, taking the measurement when the child is agitated, crying, or in pain. Of course, we all know that those are things that will cause elevated blood pressures. If you are really upset or really angry, or if you are a little kid and you're really scared, um, your blood pressure will be elevated. We see this all the time, every day, especially in pediatrics. So it's just something that's good to keep in mind, that if you have an agitated patient, they will have a higher blood pressure. And then finally, another common blood pressure mishap that we see is trusting our machines too much. So a lot of people don't realize that the blood pressure machines that we use actually are calculating the systolics and diastolics and not measuring the systolics and diastolics. So if you have a machine and we're relying on that machine to produce a number and we're using that number to make clinical interventions or changes in a patient's management, we better be pretty sure that we can trust that machine. And um, what I mean by that and what that basically boils down to is that if you have an elevated blood pressure and let's say it doesn't really fit with the other clinical context of that patient, it may be a good idea to go to the patient's bedside and check a manual blood pressure yourself. Machines are machines and they are not a good substitute for a solid manual blood pressure that is taken by a skilled physician or a skilled nurse. Before we delve into medical management for acute hypertension, I kind of want to run through the things that I do when I get called about an abnormal blood pressure in a patient. Um, and some of these ring true for any vital sign abnormality. So let's say a nurse calls me and they say, patient XYZ, they had an elevated blood pressure. Um, it was 150 over 95 or something like that. Um, the first thing that I want to do is get a full set of vital signs. And I cannot stress this enough. I think this is super important. One vital sign alone does not give you a good assessment of what's going on with that patient. So let's talk through a couple different scenarios um, and we can kind of highlight why getting a complete set of vital signs is so important. So let's say um, we have this kid, right? He has the blood pressure that we just talked about. It's 150 over 95 you, let's say he's, I don't know, 11 years old. Um, you say, okay, would you mind texting me a full set of vital signs? Nurse says, sure. Um, she texts you back and the child is hypertensive, but he's also tachycardic. He's a little tachypnic and he's febrile. That is a kid that you want to go see because those are all abnormal. All of the vital signs are abnormal. And you want to make sure that this child is 
um, clinically stable and that we can differentiate between if he has sort of like a fever with an acute illness, is he heading towards sepsis, but he's just compensated from a blood pressure standpoint at this point in time. Um, so that's one scenario. Let's say same case, a kid is hypertensive. You ask for a full set of vitals. They respond and they say the kid is hypertensive, tachycardic, but a febrile. And let's say this is a five-year-old. You know, it just kind of begs the question of, is this a kid who's hypertensive because he's in pain? Or is it a really upset five-year-old? Let's say this is a five-year-old that's NPO prior to surgery, and he's screaming his little head off because he's not able to eat breakfast. You know, that's not a kid that you need to intervene on their hypertension because you know that it's because of a secondary cause. It's because of discomfort, agitation, pain, whatever the case may be. Let's say we have a kid who's hypertensive and the nurse texts you back and not only is he hypertensive, but um, he's also a little bradycardic. You go to your computer and you look at the um, history of the vital signs that occurred, let's say overnight, and he's been pretty persistently hypertensive, bradycardic, and his respiratory rate is a little bit all over the place. That's a kid that you're going to be scared about, right? Because that kid could have Cushing's triad. It could have elevated ICP. Um, And that's definitely a kid you're going to want to go see right away. So these are just a couple examples of um, different scenarios where children can be hypertensive, um, but getting a full set of vital signs really just opens up a whole picture about what may or may not be going on with that child. Um, And if they're truly hypertensive from like a renal standpoint, or if they're hypertensive from other causes. The next thing you're going to want to do is obtain a manual blood pressure. So let's just say that we have a kid, he's 17, his blood pressure is 150 over 95, which is, of course, elevated for his age. And he, you know, all of his other vital signs are normal. He's not in pain, he's comfortable, he's eating lunch, he feels fine, he doesn't have any headache, he doesn't have any secondary causes of hypertension. Um, you look back in his chart and he has been on um, pulse dose steroids for just a little over 24 hours now for treatment of, let's say, lupus. So this is a child where you're kind of thinking, okay, you know, he could have acute hypertension because of his steroids that he's been on. Um, and this is a kid that we may need to intervene on from a medical standpoint. You still want to obtain a manual blood pressure in that scenario. Um, Because like I said, we don't really trust the machine. It's always good to check a manual just to be sure that the readings that you're getting from the machine are the same or at least in the same ballpark as the ones that you're getting manually. So that would be the next thing that you would do. Um, And then, of course, you think about common blood pressure problems. So let's say, um, yeah, he's been on steroids, but we aren't really sure. I mean, he's a 17-year-old guy. Maybe he's a football player. Maybe he's really big. We just want to double check and make sure that the bladder of the blood pressure cuff that we're using um, and the width are appropriate for someone his size. So if we're using a pediatric cuff that's a little smaller, we could be creating um, artificially elevated blood pressures. So let's say we resize his cuff a little and then his blood pressure is 135 over 85, which is yeah, maybe a little high, um, but not something that you would necessarily need to acutely intervene on. So those are just some things to kind of think about. 
in terms of whether or not you need to pursue medical management or whether you can do other things first to kind of troubleshoot that blood pressure before you get to that point. All right, so let's say we have thought about our patient, we have looked at their chart, checked all their other vital signs, we did a manual blood pressure, and we're thinking, yeah, this is acute hypertension, and the blood pressure is high enough where we just really want to make sure that it's closer to normal. In that scenario, we're going to want to move forward with medical management. So I want to talk through really the top three medications that we use on the pediatric inpatient side, at least on the floor. So we're not talking about the PICU yet. We're not talking about the intensive care unit, Um, just in the ER, in the urgent care setting, and then also on the pediatric floor. Like these are the three medicines that we use that are our first line agents. The first one is a calcium channel blocker, is ratapine. Is ratapine is a really great medication because it is quick on, quick off, and you don't need a PIV to give it. So it's actually only available as a PO medication. Um, you give a dose, it's typically 0.1 to 2 milligrams per kilo per dose. Um, in practice, I usually see people giving either a 2.5 milligram tab or a 5 milligram tab. Those can be given up to every four hours as needed to control acute elevations in blood pressure. Um, It's a calcium channel blocker, so the way that it works is it blocks calcium channels, and the blocking of those calcium channels will cause vasodilation, and so the smooth muscle around the vessels gets a little bit more relaxed, and in that way, it decreases blood pressure. Pros for isratapine is that A, you don't need a PIV to use it. B, it's a pretty safe medication. Most kids will be just fine with isratapine and won't have any as adverse effects. Um, so it's a pretty safe drug to choose. It also works pretty quickly, um, but it's not the quickest, as you'll see. There are a couple things that we can use in our back pocket if we have an IV available that um, do work a little bit quicker than isratapine cons. Um, It's a calcium channel blocker, so some of the side effects can be tachycardia, and some kids will experience headache as well. Next up, we have lobetalol. Lobetalol, as we all know, is a beta blocker. Um, This is a medication that's available both PO and IV. Um, The IV form, so if you have an IV available, um, works very quickly. The onset is actually anywhere from 5 to 10 minutes. This is a drug that we use often because it's very quick on, quick off. And that's exactly what we want when we're acutely managing um, higher blood pressures. Because you can imagine, let's say we have a child who has high blood pressure. We give them a dose of a drug that's long acting. In 18 hours, they could be hypotensive because of the medication that we just administered. So these drugs, and when we're talking about acute management of hypertension, we really want to be acutely managing it. So just giving doses of drugs as needed to keep that blood pressure in a safe range. So labetalol is really good for that. It's quick on, quick off. Um, The IV form, like I said, onset in five to 10 minutes and it lasts from two to four hours. We're usually giving like 0.2 to one milligram per kilo per dose. Um, And in practice, I see people giving um, kind of more round numbers. So like 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams are some doses that, you know, you commonly kind of see IV. Now, PO labetalol is dosed a little bit differently, and it also is a little bit slower. 
Um, of course, because you have to give it PO, right? So the onset for PO labetalol is um, 20 minutes to two hours. It also hangs out in your system a little longer, so it's not as optimal. Um, and the dose is a little higher just because of um, bioavailability. So you're going to be giving anywhere from one to three milligrams per kilo per day. Um, and you usually divide that in two divided doses. Pros for labetalol, um, again, just like azratapine, it's safe to give in most kids. Um, it's quick on, quick off, like we already talked about. And then as far as cons, beta blockers aren't that great for asthmatics. They do produce some bronchospasm. So if you have a severe asthmatic who's also hypertensive, not the best option for that kid. And then they're also bad for kids who have heart failure. I know it's kind of confusing because um, we do sometimes use beta blockers in the management of heart failure. But if you have a kid who's coming in, let's say to the ER, and they have a known history of heart failure, hitting them with a big dose of labetalol will kind of knock out that squeeze function in their ventricles because it's a negative inotrope, um, and that could really cause some issues. So just be careful with your beta blockers in your heart failure patients. The third and final drug that we often use on the pediatric floor or in the pediatric ED um, is hydralazine. Hydralazine is also available IV and PO, just like labetalol. The mechanism of action is unknown, but we think it works by dilating arterioles. So it doesn't really affect the veins, but it will dilate um, small arterioles. We don't know exactly how, but in that way it works to lower your blood pressure. It is available, like I said, IV and PO. The IV form um, onset of action is anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, so it's a nice quick drug. Similar to the other two, it's um, fairly quick on, quick off, and it lasts anywhere from 4 to 12 hours. The dose for IV is going to be 0.1 to 0.5 milligrams per kilo per dose, um, and a max dose of 20 milligrams per dose. Uh, the PO dosing will range from 0.25 milligrams per kilo per dose every six to eight hours as needed. Pros, it is a very safe medication, but cons for hydralazine, it's not quite as strong as other agents. So the isratapine and the lobetalol typically have a little bit more effect. Um, and so for that reason, sometimes we'll use those two quick, uh, first line. Um, once you get beyond the point of controlling blood pressures with isratapine, labetalol, and hydralazine, you may start thinking about bigger and badder drugs to help get that blood pressure under control. And this is kind of the fork in the road where there's a whole lot of other antihypertensive medications out there that we don't have time to talk about today. But at least at my institution, the next line treatment for severe and uncontrolled hypertension in the acute setting would be nicardipine. Um, nicardipine is also a calcium channel blocker, so it's similar to isratapine in that sense, but you're able to give it via the IV. It is kind of a unstable drug when given IV, so usually it's given in a drip. And what's really, really nice about nicardipine is that it's very quick on and very quick off. It, so you can very quickly titrate your blood pressures. Um, really great for the intensive care setting because the IV form works in two to five minutes and it wears off in 30 to 60 minutes. So they can be in there titrating that drip and 
really maintaining that blood pressure within a pretty tight range. So really, really great for that. Dosing is in the drip dosing. So it's in um, micrograms per kilo per minute. And that dose is usually anywhere from 0.5 to 3 micrograms per kilo per minute. So those are really the drugs that we use in the pediatric inpatient setting to manage acute elevations and blood pressures. Um, I did kind of want to have a little sidebar at this point and talk about one obvious and very big group of medications that are not on this list and why. So we talked about isratapine, which is a calcium channel blocker. We talked about labetalol, which is a beta blocker. We talked about hydralazine, which is kind of off at the, in its own category. Um, and when I look at that list, I think to myself, where are the ACE inhibitors? Why are there no ACE inhibitors that we use in pediatrics for the acute management of blood pressure? So this, the reason for this is kind of twofold. One, ACE inhibitors, um, if you kind of reach very far back into your memory, uh, all the way back to medical school, you might remember that ACE inhibitors work on the efferent arterial in the kidney. So if you imagine your glomerulus, you have an afferent arterial that brings blood to the glomerulus, and then the efferent arterial brings it away from the glomerulus. So um, ACE inhibitors work to dilate that efferent arterial that brings blood away from the glomerulus. So if you imagine a kid who just walks off the street, previously healthy, um, and comes in with a blood pressure of like something insane, like 200 over 100, and you don't know anything about that child, may not be the best idea to give them an ACE inhibitor because ACE inhibitors are associated with acute kidney injury. And so if you don't know anything about that child, probably not the safest drug to give them. The reason it causes acute kidney injury is because if you imagine that efferent arterial that's dilated, more blood is kind of flowing away from the glomerulus um, and less blood is being filtered through. So it kind of decreases the filtration that's occurring at the level of the kidney. So if you already have something going on, like let's say you have an AKI already because you ingested some large amount of something at home, you know, let's say you're a teenager, um, you come in with an AKI, uh, you already have decreased perfusion in your kidney and giving an ACE inhibitor can worsen that. Or let's say in a different scenario, you are a star athlete and you've been running, 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 and you're super dehydrated. Um, because of that, you have a pre-renal AKI. And because of that, you're having this acute elevated blood pressure. If you give an ACE inhibitor, if that patient's already dehydrated, they already have decreased perfusion at the level of the kidney. Um, and so dilating that efferent arterial is going to worsen that decreased perfusion and kind of perpetuate that AKI. So in those scenarios, that's why we don't use ACE inhibitors. And that's really the main reason here. The second reason we don't use ACE inhibitors um, is because they're long acting. So we spent a lot of time talking about how quick on, quick off is really the best case scenario for acute hypertension management. Um, and a lot of the ACE inhibitors like lisinopril work for like over 24 hours. And so you really don't want to get yourself into this hairy situation where 24 hours after you gave lisinopril, you're experiencing low blood pressures. 
because that would just make things way more complicated. The exception to that rule is um, captopril, which is one of the quickest onset ACE inhibitors, and I think that's rarely used, but um, in general, we don't really use ACE inhibitors in acute management of hypertension in pediatrics. So that is this week's episode on acute management of elevated blood pressure in pediatric patients. I hope you found it helpful. As always, I'm going to post this quick notes, kind of one page summary of those things that we talked about on the website, which is mdnotified.com. Thank you for listening. This is MD Notified. I am Christine Sufchuk, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to MD Notified, a pediatric podcast. References to the information sourced in this episode can be found in the Quick Notes outline, which is available on mdnotified.com. The contributors to MD Notified have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals in today's episode and do not represent any other organizations or its employees. The primary purpose of this podcast is to inform and educate. This podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice or services. If you are a member of the general public and have questions, please make an appointment with your local board-certified pediatrician. Thank you.